0: the International Door Association's DoorCast. The IDA DoorCast will provide news and notes from the building and remodeling industry and tips and tidbits to help you improve your business. Now, here's your DoorCast host, IDA Executive Director, Mike Fisher.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Mike Fisher. Welcome to the IDA DoorCast brought to you from the Winding Bar Cafe. My guest today is Dan Apple. Dan is the Managing Director of the Apple Group, and we're going to talk about selling in the new abnormal, lead times, back orders, and price. Oh my! So pull up a chair and give a listen. Hey Dan, thanks for coming on today.
2: Thanks, Mike. Uh, I'm proud to be part of the first one of the first door casts.
1: That's kind of neat. It is, and we're having some fun with it. And I think we'll we'll have some fun today trying to share some of your wisdom with our with our listeners. So. Before we get started, I know many people in the door industry have heard about you. Certainly I have. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Apple Group and what you're doing and how you're helping the industry?
2: Well, the Apple Group started when it was time for us to retire. Uh, The last thing I wanted to do was hang around like an old ball player until you start embarrassing yourself. So my wife and I agreed we had to have a gig before we retired. And so what better gig would there be than to help other people not make the same mistakes we made? So we set up, and I'd been asked by friends and people throughout the industry for a long time, can you help me with this or that or give me your opinions or ideas? So if we could help people, what better gig could there be? So I was very happy that we put together this consulting group, and uh, my wife and I, Sandy is a CPA and MBA, and so she focuses on the financial aspect of the business, and I do the operational side of it. And that's exactly what we do, try to help folks not make the same mistakes. Um, I, I was a door dealer for 33 years in Virginia. We had eight stores at the top. I've retired at 55 and people ask me, why'd you retire at 55? It's because I couldn't retire at 50. We were in a recession. The The whole idea was one good thing about my career. I found people better at doing whatever job I was doing than I was until I worked myself right out of a job. And we had great people and that's, that was the, the key to it. Um, but pretty much that's it. That's what got Apple group going. And um we have clients all over the country now.
1: well, it sounds like the partnership you have in this business with your wife is it really puts you in a unique place to bring some good perspectives to IDA door dealers and and to the industry and it sounds like you're bringing some of this tribal knowledge we' like to talk about within the door industry, lessons learned and all those buzzwords that we can throw out, but you're you, you have a more of a personal stake in it, which I which I think is pretty good. and I also know that you're pretty well connected to the industry. as you said, your time in the industry means that you have a lot of friends and, and uh, colleagues that you've worked with over the years, um, fought many, many battles over the days, and I know you're in touch with them. So can you tell us today in this post-COVID or semi-post-COVID world what you're hearing from door dealers about the challenges that they're facing today?
2: Well, the number one thing is the lack of field techs, and that's not new. That's been going on a long time, as you know, Mike, and it just hamstrings their growth. I over and over I get told, "Boy, our sales could have gone up 20% last year if we had enough people to do the work." And so that's the first thing that we're still hearing. Not COVID, not access, it's lack of techs. The second is obviously product lead times right now. It's a current event that's just uh hurtful to everybody on the dealer side of the business. I guess it's hurtful to the manufacturing side, too. The third thing right now is Access to training new hires if we can get them. Uh, it was interesting. One of our clients asked us, How should I place an ad? I said, Well, why don't you advertise for police officers that no longer want to be police officers or uh, veterans, um, first responders of any kind, because we have a lot to offer in the industry. So once we get these people, how do we train them? And there is no ready-made way to train them. You've got to do it yourself. You've got to come up with a program to do it internally. There are a lot of resources you can use outside in the industry, but it's up to you to come up with the program. And so that access to training is one one of the big things I get asked about a lot. And then another one is we're working really hard, really long hours. It's not uncommon to be 12 hours a day, six days a week, sometimes more, for very little profit. We have great sales, but when we look at the profitability, not that great. So what can I do about it is one of the questions we're getting asked. And so those are the four things that I'm seeing right now every day when I talk to dealers across the country.
1: You mentioned those four times. I I think there's a couple of other curveballs I want to throw on here to ask you about. And one of those, of course, is what's happening with price increases and all that. So. So hold that thought. We're probably going to come back to that. And the other is, of course, lead times um, you mentioned, but unfortunately, it's sometimes that lead time turns into a back order, And in many cases, the dealer doesn't know that happened until he gets his packing list uh, when the truck shows up. So there are some additional challenges there. I think that uh, as we delve into more detail, you'll be able to, to help our listeners kind of get a handle on. And even if we can't solve all the problems of the world on this podcast, at least if nothing else, we can commiserate with our listeners. Because sometimes it's better even if we can just share the experience. So, you know, I play a lot of golf and one of the things I, I've often latched onto is the caddy mantra, which is, you know, basically three parts to that. Show up, keep up, and shut up. And, you know, we've all been taught on the shut up part where it's really not a good idea to oversell. Once you have a, you know, once you have the sale, then it's time to move on to fulfilling it. But the, the show up and the keep up part, I think, are equally important. So make sure that you're on time and make sure that you are prepared and keep up, meaning really listen to the customer. And that's just one piece of selling. But I always like to kind of talk about that as a as kind of a way to, to impress upon a, a salesperson that they need to really pay attention to the process. And I do know that's a big part of what you offer in terms of consulting and coaching for your uh, clients and for friends who just happen to catch you on the phone. Um, is really is really about how to deal with that selling process and manage those different processes. So one of the big things that we have in these times, you know, you talked about, you know, all the issues that we're facing with lack of labor in the field and lead time issues and everything else is a big part of that is also managing the expectations of the customer. So, so throw us some pearls of wisdom on that front if you if you can.
2: Well, Mike, I just wrote an article. Um for the magazine and i called it back to the future it's about selling now versus selling in 1981 versus 2021 and it contrasted the differences and how so many things are different but some things are still the same and you talked about listen more talk less you know someone can listen four times faster than they can talk and uh, you're gathering information instead of spewing information so that you can make a good choice in the, in our selling basics course that's what we talk about is active listening and how important that is in the selling process you know in the in the article we talked about what are the dynamics what has changed so much in all these years we've gone from uh, a product that you could have any door you want as long as it was wood primed or unprimed glass or not and that was pretty much it when i started And now we've got just this huge plethora of choices in the garage door world to choose from, not just with the doors, but the openers as well. So that's a terrific situation for someone selling now. The process in 1981 took about a week. You know, we'd get the call, we'd get the lead, we would go out. If we were going to be late, we'd stop by a phone booth to call and say we were running a little late, right? And um, we had to say, we'll get it to you in the mail. Sure enough, we'd go back, we'd get a quote typed up, nice and professional, send that to you in the mail. Well, that process took a week or more. Now we can do that whole process in about 15 minutes, depending on the sales call, so that you can short circuit it to that. You've gotta be thinking about a lot of things. You didn't have that week to think about it or a few days to think about it. You've gotta be able to think on your feet. And it's great that we have these tools where the customer can sign the the quote with his finger, but you've gotta have the technology in place. And that goes back to my comment about software. To me, it's great to be a salesperson right now. I think having been one then, this this is so much better because you can give so much more uh, attention to the customer. And the other part of this is that they have the ability to find out a lot about the product that they're looking for before you ever get there. So it's really important that you're sharp and on your game. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. The thing that has not changed is the need to have world-class service to back up these sales. If you sell a garage door and they call you for service and you don't shine then they forget you pretty quick. So that need hasn't changed to have the have that supportive relationship with the customer for life. And I think that that if we could do one thing in our sale uh, selling strategy it would be to support that service the best you can every time, because you're going to need it. Another article some years ago, the title of the article is The Business We've Chosen. It was a kind of a hitchhike on a godfather line in a movie. We've chosen the service business, and we get so wrapped up that we sell doors. Sometimes we forget we're in the service business, and oh, by the way, we sell garage doors. At least that's how I look at it.
1: I think that's pretty good. You mentioned, you know, we're talking about managing expectations, and you you talked about how the customer knows a lot more. There was a time when all the customer knew about you is that you had a phone number, a company name, and a yellow page ad in the garage door section. That was all they really knew about you. Now they can investigate you. They can look for reviews online. One way to look at that is that the customer is actually pre-qualifying you as a potential vendor before you even get that phone call or that uh, message on, online. Um, so I think that's a, a total change in the paradigm, and we need to understand that. Another thing that you were talking about is a little bit on the technology side. And I actually talked to a dealer who said it's not uncommon for a couple of his people to actually have the customer in a residential application do a DIY field measurement. So the customer says, when can you come out and measure this? I want this door. I want to get it on order and get it replaced. And the guy says, well, I need to come out and measure it. Next thing you know, they're using FaceTime on their smartphone, showing the inside of the garage. And the salesperson is telling the individual how to look and measure the opening, and then look up to see if there are any obstructions, make sure there's no problem with the opener locations and all that. And so they're actually now bringing the customer into the process of doing their own field check, which I think is amazing. So there, there is a different process in place. And part of that, as I was talking about advertising in Yellow Pages, is really about advertising. And you know, so as we move from the compressed selling process, that obviously means we're not advertising in the same way. So talk a little bit about how that shift to, to like Facebook and other social media has played out.
2: Well, in this, in this article I wrote, one of the topics was about how advertising has changed, marketing and advertising. Yellow Pages was easy. You created the ad one time a year, you placed it, all you had to do was pay for it. It was simple. 90% of your advertising dollar went into that bucket. Well, I think one of the best things that happened to us was being able to advertise on the internet, to make that uh, yellow page an electronic yellow page so that we can do more with it. And and I think that it's a better value because it's trackable. I and mean, if something's not working, you know pretty quick if you're watching it. Whereas the yellow page the book stayed closed most of the time. And it was a reactive kind of advertising whereas the uh, internet is a proactive type with the seo search engine optimization it's critical to get your pages indexed our friends at market hardware will tell you all about that and it works the pay-per-click the tracking ads that seem to follow you if you express an interest in anything it's amazing how those ads can can track you and they're very inexpensive and very effective But I think the idea behind it is it's a better value. I think you really are pound for pound getting more for your money with the electronic ways of advertising. Um, And the other thing you can have your business open 24 seven. I mean, you have an electronic showroom business office on the computer. So if someone wants to check you out at 10 o'clock at night in their PJs, no problem. We're open. (laughs) So it's, I think it puts us in a lot of in a much better situation from a dollars and cents standpoint for marketing.
1: It does turn door dealers into almost 24-7 enterprises, which works when it works and when it doesn't, you need to respond. So I think one of the messages I'm taking from what you're sharing with it is you need to listen. And we can go back to the caddy mantra, mantra a little bit. You need to listen to what your customers are telling you. And if they're not telling you something, that means you're not reaching them. So the good news is, as you said, yellow pages, you get to track every year. With social media and other forms of digital advertising, you get instantaneous results really on on your uh, on your investment. And the whole idea, obviously, is to turn your investment in advertising into an accounts receivable, which is again a whole other discussion. But one of the other things that we've been dealing with in this, what you know, we've been calling the new abnormal. We're not going back to normal. We're not going <laughs> back to a new normal. Whatever we end up in here uh, is going to be a new abnormal. That's that's I think the the reality of today's world. So. Uh, as, as we do that, one of the things that we've realized is that there has been a tremendous um, change in the supply chain, and we'll have another podcast talking about what's happening with just in time inventories and how you know that wonderful idea has turned into be a real problem, especially if you were looking for toilet paper last April, that was a that was a big problem, right? Because the supply chain totally disrupted us. That also meant changes in pricing one of the problems we have in in our world is dealing with customers especially customers under longer term contracts and what happens when prices change and you're effectively forced to change the deal you know what uh, advice can you give to our listeners about how to do that uh you know how to respond to the changing pricing
2: well there's <clears throat> excuse me there's a lot of anxiety about changing prices on the dealer side I, ironically, it was one of the happiest times of my business career it was on right. January 1st. We raised prices almost across the board because we had had price increases from our suppliers, parts, doors, operators, across the board. And I knew I was covering that additional cost. I've got clients that have sucked up cost increase after cost increase. And when I ask, well, have you raised your prices to offset these cost increase? The answer is no. And it's mostly because of fear and intimidation. The idea that their uh, builder or uh, whoever they're dealing with will go elsewhere. Well, you know, it's sort of like you don't have the opportunity to go to the grocery store and say, well, I'll pay this for that carton of eggs or the gas station and say, no, I'm not going to pay $2.67. I'm going to pay whatever I want to pay. You don't have that luxury there. Well the dealer needs to understand, and this is one thing that we talk about a lot in consultation with people, it's not your fault what it costs. You didn't make the rules. You know, you are buying from a supplier in good faith. He's providing a product, which you hope is is the best you can find, at a price point that he's got to make money to. It's not your fault what it costs, and therefore you have to make a profit also. So being reluctant to raise your prices only hurts you. And, uh, you know, that's a tough sell. Most folks are concerned about that and worried to death. If I I raise my price, I'm going to lose this builder. Well, you can certainly take an offensive position with pricing and say, here's the documentation. Here are three letters that I've received and six months from this particular vendor, which I'm using those doors in your subdivision, where they've increased prices. I don't really have a choice. If he says, well, I'll go elsewhere. Well, everybody else is kind of in the same boat. Now, what they do with their business is up to them, but in your case, you want to run a successful business that requires profitability, and you have to keep pace with it. So I would be unapologetic about raising prices. The anxiety is there,
1: I understand that anxiety having been in sales for much of my career, but I think a lot of that, how that conversation goes is dependent upon the relationship you have with that customer. So that's another, that's another part of it is making sure you have the relationship. And I remember when I was um, in sales, I had one manager that said, remember, Mike, you're not looking for orders. You are not looking for orders. You're looking for customers because if you have enough customers, then you will get the repeat business and the orders you will have the relationships and then when you have to deal with issues like this, you're dealing with it from a, a you know, a, a stronger position, you kind of got the, you know, the high ground, so to speak on that.
2: The only reason the customer is doing business with you is overpriced. You don't have much. That's, that's the only reason. And so if you're communicating often enough and you have a good enough relationship with that customer, maybe give them a heads up. Hey, this is going to happen. You know, we've got notification now, this is going to happen in two months or a month or whatever. Just giving you a heads up, you know, maybe we should go ahead and get what you need right now and stock it for you. So I feel like that getting rid of that reluctance to pass along a price increase is, is really a, a function of your your profitability and you're keeping your eyes on that profitability. And, you know, you just got to get over the fear of it. Gas And groceries, they do what they want to do, and you pay what it's going to to cost. So it's really no different in our industry, I think.
1: We're going to take a break right now, but don't go anywhere because we'll be right back.
0: Each year, the Garage Door and Access Systems industry observes Garage Door Safety Month. Garage Door Safety Month has been moved to May to coincide with the International Code Council's Building Safety Month. While the importance of safety is recognized year-round, May is a special month for IDA members to take the opportunity to share their dedication to safety with consumers and the markets they serve. For additional information about Garage Door Safety Month and to download your member toolkit, visit doors.org today.
1: Welcome back to the IDA DoorCast. So the lead times is another thing. It sounds like we're kind of on the same, the same bullet there. It's another people don't want to talk about. Sorry, we can't get that door for you for 10 weeks or 12 weeks, whatever that number might be for that specific product. Anything, any other perspective on that front or is it the same yeah, story?
2: I think, it's, I think it's the creating the expectation. We've got this paradigm forever in the industry, three to four weeks. That's our paradigm. That's exactly how it's been set almost in stone forever. We've got to shift the paradigm. We've got to be upfront with the customer. Give them a realistic expectation. In our business, three to four weeks, we always used four to six weeks. And if we came in earlier, everybody was happy. Under-promised and over-delivered in that case. So I think having a realistic expectation set right up front at the point of sale, because what I see happening and what clients that I'm talking to are saying, door dealers are saying, well, you know, they're hopping mad and ready to cancel the order. And I said, well, what did you tell them terms of expectations. And, you know, people hear a lot of things. What do you have on the quote? Well, our quote said, whatever, four to six weeks. And if you know that's going to be uh, worse than that, uh, set the expectation appropriately. Don't wait until you've got somebody mad as a hen on the telephone.
1: Yeah. Having that realistic expectation up front. The best part or the easiest way to manage expectations is to help create the expectation to begin with. Absolutely. So, Another way to say this, and that is, by the way, we're worth waiting for. Absolutely, you want to do business with us? Help, you know, we'll get through this. Now, there are there are times, of course, when there are other factors at play here. For example, a new building is under construction, and they got to close it up. A new home is being built, and they want to deliver the appliances. And or whatever else I want to store in there today, it could be two by fours, which are pretty pricey, right? So yeah, we want to deliver some lumber, and we're afraid to leave it unguarded because of the price of uh, two by fours. Part of that uh, selling that door to that customer is not just about filling an opening, but it's also securing the premises during construction. Uh, that's just one example. So uh, tell us about now how trying to find a way to be creative can add value to the to the process, not just of selling but also delivering.
2: An added value service might be well. Look, we understand your situation. Let us put some sections in there and make them operable. It's not going to be pretty, but it'll be functional and you'll have security. We did that a lot, especially when it was our fault or our fault, meaning the manufacturer's fault, let us down. So therefore, we let the customer down. Then we'd go out and hang the door temporarily, get it going. So they had function and, and security. That was one way to, to, to address it. If they just wanted the opening closed up. In some cases, customers are willing to pay to have the opening boarded up. Or if you can take their old door, if they have an old door, if it's not new construction, and you can band aid it enough to make it operable until the door gets in. So I think the idea is to be flexible and not just say, well, you know, it's 12 weeks, sorry. If it's your sale, if you can guard the sale by providing some added value services, why not? Someone else, your competitor, May very well offer those services, so why not? Another thing would be bringing the customer in closer in the selling process, and especially in the selection process. Color chips. Well, that's a pretty basic thing that we all have in our somewhere in our cars, in our offices, in our showrooms. They look different under fluorescent light or office light. A good idea would be to get them involved in the color selection. You know, you're going to wait. 12, 15, 16 weeks for this product, you want to make sure the color is exactly what you want. So providing those color chips, running them out to the customer so they can see them in the daylight or out in front of their house. Using the door visualizing software that all the manufacturers seem to have now, I think it's underutilized because it takes time to do it. To superimpose what a new door would look like, an upgraded new door, I must say, on their home versus what they have, is worth the investment of time. And it does take a bit of time. It's not hours, but it's certainly not five minutes. And to get them involved in the process, you know, uh, we had an area of the showroom that was just for that. In fact, I have designed a couple of showrooms for clients in the past two years. In both cases, we had an area just for that computer screen and doing that visualization because it helped them see it it's sort of like it, they could see it before they buy it and that was a big deal post sale one thing that it's kind of a trend that i'm not really happy about seeing is the garage door opener world is all about operating the doors with your smartphone using the technology that's out there chamberlains is called myq You sell the upgraded opener, the fancy belt drive with the Kung Fu grip and all the other accolades that comes along with it. And one of those things is this Wi-Fi technology. Often I am hearing that we leave that up to customers to set the MyQ or to set the the Wi-Fi protocol on the smartphones. As an added value service, I think we should offer to help them do that. How would you want to be treated as a customer if you bought the upgraded stuff only to be given these uh, instructions and say, it's it's in the instructions, set it up yourself. So while it's not happening all the time, it happens enough that I think that there's an opportunity that we're
1: losing to add value to that sale. And it is a great feature. And the way we live today, why would you not want to make sure that your customer could take advantage of that feature? So...
2: And it doesn't have to be the tech. It could be the sales guy. That would be another reason to be in front of the customer post-sale. No problem, Mrs. Homeowner. I'll come by there, and I'll help you set that up. And oh, by the way, while I'm here, we sell entry doors, and I noticed yours is starting to rust. That's one more reason to be in front of the customer.
1: And being in front of a customer, after all, is a big part of managing the customer relationship. Even in residential replacement, there will be a need at some point for you know, for a return visit, whether it's a service call or a new door replacement or or something. It sounds to me like we're talking about creativity, being a little innovative in your approach so that you can set yourself apart from the competition. And that kind of leads me into my next question is, you know, it's one thing to excel, but in post-COVID new abnormal, you know, we hear a lot about this phrase, which is survive and thrive. So let's get through it so that you can thrive, but first you got to survive. To kind of short circuit that, what's your uh, best approach to that?
2: Well, I think thriving, most important ingredient to thriving is have the best people, to have an organization with qualified people that see a favorable future. I mean, that's the, that's the employer's and, and company owner's job is to create a favorable future that the employees can see and embrace. To do that, you need to train them. It's difficult to set an expectation and not provide the training needed to get them where they need to be. And uh, as I said earlier, I wrote an article, a two-part article, creating a training program. And I think that's really important. Learn from our mistake. My mistake was Bubba. We would OJT all the techs that come to work there by sticking them with Bubba, our lead guy. And Bubba was a good old boy, great mechanic. I can say good old boy because I'm from the South. Great mechanic, great installer, great service tech, lousy teacher. In fact, it was a nuisance for him to have to be teaching this person. That does not say that there aren't techs out there that are great teachers. But our OJT program, like so many others have in this industry, just wasn't cutting it. We created Garage Door University, kind of tongue-in-cheek. And the idea behind it was to create a standard whereby we had a curriculum. Okay, you come here day one and you know zero. You may have some basic mechanical skills, but you don't know anything about garage doors. In a week, we're going to have you installing garage doors. You know, In a month, you're going to be out on your own. Now, you're going to have tools of the trade with you, and you're going to have someone observing you. But we would short-circuit the process where it would take six months or more with Bubba. We could have you up and going. Literally, you could install doors in a week. Now, you wouldn't be great at it because you'd need practice. Well, all of that came by us making the same mistake over and over and over, and finally one day said, we need a training program, and we created it. And it doesn't have to be really elaborate. You don't have to go out and hire someone to be in charge of training. The article outlines how to start simple, how to start small. But training, both internally and externally, is how you get that workforce that you need to survive and thrive. Another item I think that makes all the difference, especially when it comes to thriving, is having the right software. Let's go back to my mistake. We used the same basic accounting package forever, and it did a great job of doing debits and credits and accounts receivable and all that, but didn't help us run our business from a scheduling, operations, marketing, sales. It didn't have that component. So once we went out and said, Well, what's out there in the garage door industry? It was very limited at the time because now we're talking about 1999, 2000. So we went to the HVAC industry. And sure enough, we found something that would work for us because the industries are very similar. It took us a long time to come to that decision. But once we did, our efficiency went up 20% almost overnight just by having a D board in front of us. Our profitability went up significantly because now we could see the estimates being built and what the expectations was for the profit at the time, what was estimated versus the actual. And it was live. You could see it as we were going through the process. So the software made all the difference in the world in our business. Now, when I ask a client what kind of software you use, he says QuickBooks. I go, well, that's great. I'm glad you use using QuickBooks. What do you use for the operational side of your business? And usually it's not what I would hope that they would be using to make them more efficient. And so it's worth it. We'll spend $50,000 for a service truck, which is a tool. It's a tool that helps us make money. But when we talk about software, not very sexy, but I assure you that in our experience, our mistake was not getting the right software that made us more profitable. And that's the name of the game. Another one that we will not seem to invest in, not universally, but we did not invest in a financial person to help us run the financial end of our business. We had the typical bookkeeper and maybe somebody that knew accounts receivable or billing or aspects of it, but they were clerk, not a full charge accountant. Not necessarily a degree accountant, but someone that could create our financial statements monthly and not just create them, but help me understand them. And Basically, use that data to help manage the business. Investing in a financial person to run that aspect of your business, I think, is is extremely important. It's just as important as an operations manager or a sales manager. So, getting away from that reluctance to invest in someone for that key position, I think, is key to thriving going forward. And I don't see it enough. And when I broach that question with our dealer clients, I get the same kind of thing. It's, it's almost like that's not really sexy. You know, sales are sexy. Profit's sexy, and you need that financial person to help you get that profit. The other, only thing I wanted to say about that question, pay less attention to your competitors. They can't do a thing for your business. Maybe they can make your business better if they make mistakes, but your focus should be on your business, not on what they're doing or what they're charging or what their hourly rate is. Who cares? You can't do anything about it anyway. Focus on your business. How can you provide that good-to-great service? How can you provide world-class service after the sale? What are the things you can do to add value to your customers so that they'll be customers for life? And that's really what we're after. You said that your manager told you you weren't making sales; you were making, you were getting customers. It's that simple. You're creating relationships, hopefully that last a lifetime. So don't pay so much attention to those competitors. They're not going to help you.
1: Dan, it sounds like you've got, as I said earlier, tribal knowledge, a tremendous amount of uh, experience to share on this and a lot of tools of the trade. I'm pretty sure from our conversations here and elsewhere that you have a lot of other areas that you can coach our dealers. And one of the things that's happening right now, of course, is our 100-year anniversary of the garage door industry. And that you know kind of makes makes me think about how so much of our industry is a family business with many generations in the same family often involved in the businesses that can lead to concerns about how do I manage the future generations of this business? And sometimes that means succession planning. So can you just give us that quick overcap of how you approach succession planning discussions with your clients?
2: Sure. I'd like to say one bit about the family business. And the and, and garage door industry is a, and on the dealer side is, is especially a, fa- a family business. We call it mom and pop business. And thank God it is. It's why it makes it so pleasant to work here. It's also one of the most challenging things to work with your family. I know firsthand how difficult it is. And My dad started our business and uh, I was in the Navy and I got out of the Navy and went in with him. And it was very difficult, the dynamics of the personal relationship and being able to put on that business hat when you walk through the door. And I know that there are people that will be listening to this that have those same challenges with those relationships. Now, with that said, New generation versus old generation, what we're seeing. The newer generation are seeing much more value in short-circuiting the process to get where they want to be through training, through profitability. Asking questions like, okay, profits have been this way a long time, but why? Why are they this way? Why aren't they better? And are willing to go out and seek help and advice to get them better. So that's a good thing. Sometimes they try to get there too quick, and the sage advice of the older generation is really important. They need not Zoom past it. Or maybe we're not, speaking of Zoom, maybe we're not that great at Zoom, but we're pretty good at the garage door business because we got there for 50 years or however long the business has been been going. As we have this, oh, and, and it w- will require some succession planning from one generation to the next, if that's the case. In some cases, it's not a succession plan to a relative a son or a daughter, it could be an exit strategy to sell the business to an outside party. In either case, unfortunately, we are not doing a good enough job in the industry as a whole on the dealer side with coming up with a succession plan. And I I get it. It's hard. It's something you got to set time to do. Oftentimes, it's not something you want to think about because it means you're exiting the business and maybe you don't want to do that. I will say this, though, it's often triggered or forced by an event. Had one of those happen today where I got a call from the husband, from a husband and wife team, and they are splitting, and now the sky is falling in their case, uh, not just personally, but professionally, divvying up who does what, that one person will leave the business, it's difficult. A death, a sickness, all of these things can trigger now we've got to hurry up and come up with a succession plan. And it's much better to have one ahead of time. What I tell our clients is that you need to start planning for this five years before you want to leave. And it's five years, really? It takes that long. The plan doesn't take that long to come up with. But whoever's gonna come along behind you and run that business, especially if it's a relative, you wanna make sure they're ready. If it's not a relative, it's other employees, same thing. But having that time with you and to transition to your retirement so that you know things are on the right track, it's important and it takes time. Again, it's it's not really sexy to talk about a succession plan, but when you need it, you need it. And so if you are considering exiting your business through handing it off to a relative or or a child or just selling it outside, You need to come up with a plan and work the plan. Now, it will be malleable in as much as things are going to change as you go down the path. But if you give yourself sufficient time, the plan will work. You just work the plan. It's something that people should talk to their investment planners, their lawyers, their accountants.
1: Put one together. So, Dan, speaking of succession planning, unfortunately, we have to draw today's session to a close so we need to have some succession planning for your next appearance on the IDA DoorCast. So I think we've, I've been feverishly scribbling notes for ideas for future topics, and we've got quite a few things to talk about. I could spend hours with you, uh, obviously. So let me uh, first say that if anybody who's listening wants to get in touch with Dan, he's part of our IDA team through doors.org. You can click on member services and track him down through that portal. And I encourage you to do that. If you have, if you, anything you heard today is resonating with your business, you should definitely reach out to Dan. If nothing else, you'll get a shoulder to cry on. I promise you that. But he may actually be able to bring <laughs> some benefit to you. And and he, it sounds like Dan, you've been there, you've 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 seen all of these things play out either directly or through your consulting. So I think that's a that's a great benefit. So with that, I want to thank you for taking time to come on and talk with us today. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate being here. And I want to thank our listeners, of course, for tuning into the IDA DoorCast. For now, I guess we'll say goodbye from the Winey Bar Cafe. Everybody have a wonderful day and thanks for joining us. And Dan, thanks again. So long now.
0: Thank you for listening to the IDA DoorCast. Be sure to catch our next episode. For more information about IDA, visit doors.org. See you next time.